Hello and welcome to Diverse and Inclusive Leaders, the show where I interview the most inspirational and thought-provoking leaders of today and unearth their unique stories of diversity and inclusion to help inspire, educate and motivate others to make the world a better place. Today, I am delighted to be joined by the fabulous Des Pullen. Now, Des was formerly the Group HR Director for ABF Group. His experience has spanned many decades, uh, working from HR Director of Allied Bakeries through to being Managing Director, taking up a group-wide role at ABF and advising the board. He's now working on an advisory and a part-time basis, but is still incredibly passionate about giving back the employee experience and making sure that he really does provide guidance and strategic advice uh, to those within leadership positions. I'm delighted to have him on the show today um, because I know many who know him or have worked with him in various different guises throughout their careers um, and so it'll be fantastic to learn a little bit more about Des and how he came to be where he is today. So welcome Des. Bless you. Thank you very much um, for that introduction. It, It is extraordinary to be asked at this stage in my career to to talk about how I ended up here and, and the journey. I think the first thing to say is that there was never a plan. I, I was born in, in Woking in Surrey. I'm, I'm the eldest son, eldest of three. We grew up, you know, we, we, we were poor. Uh, there's no other word for it. And education was my route out. For those of a certain age, you know, I, I passed the 11 plus and I went off to grammar school and there, you know, we, we were put on a track to do well academically and to go to university. Interestingly, a generation before, my father had passed the 11 plus and wasn't able to go to grammar school because his parents couldn't afford the uniform. And so he left school at 14. Um, So, you know, a generation on, I get the chance to go to grammar school. Uh, There we are, we are streamed towards university. I can remember a conversation uh, with Mr. Dawson, my maths teacher as he talked about which university I should aim at. And I looked across to my dad, who'd come from work, uh, so he was in boots and a donkey jacket and had muddy, muddy jeans on, thinking, no one in our family has ever talked about university. This is beyond any, anything we know. Um, and I remember my dad being terrified. Yeah, how much is that going to cost? And I'm so old that at those days, the state used to pay us to go to university. Can you imagine that now? Where we charge, where we charge young people huge sums of money to get a degree. Put simply, I wouldn't have gone to university without without the state helping me in the way that it did. So anyway, I I, I did well academically and couldn't quite persuade myself that uh, putting myself forward for the Oxbridge exams was a good idea. University was scary enough. Going to Oxbridge would be would be something else. So I ended up going to Bristol, which uh, in 1980, when I got there, was known as, as the, a factory for Oxbridge rejects. So it was full of posh people who hadn't grown up on a council estate, uh, many of whom had been to private school. And there was just a confidence about them that, that I had never seen before. So I do look back at my university days, and I did lots of stuff. I played lots of sport. I, I chaired one of the junior common rooms. I, I ran a bar for a year, which was my first commercial wow. experience. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I learned a lot and put on a lot of weight. Um, 
<clears throat> but I, I look back at my university time and, and I, I've been known to say, you know, the problem with university education is it's wasted on the young. If I could only go back and do it again, I'd just have so much more, uh, so much more intellectual fun. I think I, I had fantastic social fun, but I'm not sure I made as much of the kind of academic experience as I could have done. Anyway, three years at university was enough for me. I, I was kind of done with academia at that stage. I got a decent degree, um, not quite sure how. I partied hard for two years and one term and then worked like an absolute slave for kind of a term and a half to get through my exams. Didn't know what to do, applied to all the usual graduate schemes. Again, think back to those days. There were graduate schemes run by most blue chip companies offering you anywhere up to two years of traveling around different departments and learning new stuff. Um, anyway, I, I, I got offered a job. Uh, it was a bit of a shock to discover it was in Manchester. Um, so I, I packed up my one suitcase of stuff and, and headed off to the other end of the country, got myself a flat, and then discovered that I was actually going to be working in a place I'd never heard of called St. Helens. So again, just that bit of being dumped down in a city on your own uh, with an accent that's very different to anybody locally and you basically get on and make the best of it. I, I look now at some of the graduate schemes that companies in ABF run and I think they are just fantastic. I don't recall very much support. We were kind of dropped down and, and told to get on with it. It was an interesting business. It was a very blue-collar transport and distribution business uh, corporation called the National Freight Consortium and it was uh, Margaret Thatcher's first privatization gig. Uh, it was the one she practiced on uh, in order to learn how to do the bigger more important ones. So I was working with lots of lorry drivers and office managers who had made a lot of money out of a privatization. So it was fascinating to see the effect that that had on Kind of ordinary working people and the dynamic and the involvement that, that those people had in the performance of, of that business. It was an interesting couple of years. I, I went through a six-week strike in Liverpool where I was spat at and abused every morning for six weeks, but then would play football with the same people on a Saturday morning where we were all mates. So again, that learning point where you think actually Yes, this is important, but human contact and, 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 and having relationships that endure trials and difficult periods are, are actually really important as well. Um, I, I went off to see someone in personnel, and that's what we called it all those years ago, long before human resources had been in, invented, and certainly long before people and culture had come along, and said, look, I've been doing this for like two, two and a half years. I'm quite, I'm kind of bored. You know, what else is there for me to do? And they basically told me to go back to my little job just outside Preston. And in a year or so, they would decide where I should go next. And I kind of decided that wasn't the career, the career advice I was looking for. Started to look around and I made one of those moves that has turned out to be just a transformation for me in my career. Um, I went to join a company called Northern Foods that I'd never heard of, frankly. I'm not, not sure many had, but it was a food business that had been around since the 1930s. 
based on uh, the, the original founding family were Quakers. So there was a very real people agenda. Um, a lot of benefits in place that were uh, certainly industry leading. Um, and it, it offered a career path that wasn't too prescribed. So it was my first HR job. I'd been in operations up till then, thrown in at the deep end. The guy who recruited me, I was kind of his sidekick. Uh, he got moved out on a project after three months and the local managing director um, took me under his wing. One of those moments where, you know, frankly, he had plenty of things to do. He really didn't need to, you know, take much interest in me, but he did. And not only did he take me under his wing, but he, he explained things to me, talked me through his thinking, allowed himself at times to be quite, quite vulnerable around saying, I really don't know what I should do, but if I bounce things around with you, you know, give me a view. And he treated me with great kindness and great respect. And, you know, I, we stayed in touch over, over many, many years. Um, my career took off in Northern. I think talking with, with some old colleagues a while ago, I think I had something like nine jobs in 12 years, which, which is great because you never, you never stayed long enough to have to live with the consequences of your, of your uh, decision making. But I did operational jobs. I did... Uh, some sales management jobs. I got involved in buying companies. Uh, I did a wonderful greenfield site outside Sheffield. I was employee number three. Um, it was a hole in the ground. And when I left it, it was Europe's most advanced food factory and had 600 people working there. And it's still there today and still looks magnificent. So uh, a great time in Northern. Worked with people who took real interest in me. And to a large extent, I did a lot of growing up. However, it wasn't all wonderful. The group decided to change shape, and uh, I was a casualty of that. So I went from being kind of golden boy and, and people thinking I might be on the board and all that good stuff, um, to getting fired. And I always recommend to HR people, um, as a career development step, get fired. Be that person who is told, we don't want you anymore. And you, having, having sat, sadly, in front of lots of people, I've never fired anybody who wasn't devastated by that conversation. doesn't matter how big or how much bravado they had. Um, it really, really rips the stuffing out of you. And I, I remember driving home that night, um, sitting on the drive for an hour before I went in the house, thinking, um, I've got a two-year-old child, uh, I've got a mortgage, that I can't afford and I've got no work. What the hell do I say when I, when I go in? And uh, I, again, I, I, as clearly as I sit here now, kind of thinking 8th of March, 1996, my world came to an end. I walked in, Jan, my wife said, um, you know, how was your day? And I got fired. And she said, no, 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 seriously, how was your day? No, no, seriously, I got fired. In six months time, I'm done. And she said, oh, well, never mind. Um, Eleanor, our daughter, was just coming up to two. She needs a bath. You go sort that out and I'll, I'll deal with dinner. And I remember thinking, well, that's a, bit, that's a strange reaction. Anyway, I did as I was told. And um, later when talking to Jan, she kind of went, well, the one thing you clearly didn't need was me panicking and, oh, my God, what's going to happen? So, again, as much as I talk about careers and and all the things that matter at work, 
actually having the kind of relationship partnership where one of you can step up when the other is down is, is also critically important. So I duly left Northern um, after all those years and went off. I spent five years in retail. Um, first of all, I joined Safeway just at the time when it was going really well and it was all downhill thereafter. And then I went to join a company called Wix, which is about DIY. Um, two important learnings for me in, in those businesses. One in Safeway, it was just too big for me. I felt like I was a very small cog in a very big machine. Found it very difficult to kind of make my voice heard, very difficult to get things done. And, then, and so I went to Wix, which was a much smaller retailer, and discovered a very powerful learning for me which is I had absolutely no interest in the product. So it's a DIY retailer. Um, I am genuinely useless at DIY. Memorably, a, guy, a painter and decorator once suggested to Jan that she confiscate my paintbrush so that I didn't paint anything else. You know, I am useless. And yet I was surrounded by incredibly passionate people who were really committed to the product and the process and the service. And I was really struggling. Uh, thankfully, from my perspective at least, we were then taken over. And um, I, got, I got a redundancy package, I left, which was cool. Um, I was very happy to leave, right thing for me. Sometimes you just have to accept that you've made a bad call. Out of that I learned, don't, don't jump at things. Just because you're a bit fed up at one place, work really hard to make sure the place you're headed is good for you. And I put that into practice when I then joined ABF. Or if I'm more accurate, what I joined was Allied Bakeries, which was uh, one of the UK's big three bakery companies, new executive team. The week I joined it, it lost a million pounds in the week. And you kind of think, you probably can't make it any worse. It was a business that, that was really struggling, had been starved of investment, was, I mean, morale was just poor, uh, certainly at the, at the leadership level. But a group of us got together, a new executive team, and set out to try to turn it around. Enormous fun. The way ABF works is all about devolved authority to local management teams, very fast decision making. So, you know, if we thought it was a good idea, by and large, we could just get on with it. So we, we set about it with huge energy, group of people all about the same kind of age. Um, and about two or three months in, one of the people who had been around a while just quietly came to kind of have a cup of tea with me and said, look, I, you know, a bit of feedback for you. There's a bit of risk in this for me. But, but can I just say that you lot are really, really hacking off the rest of us and, oh okay say more and he said well we've all been here for years and we've all been doing our best and now you guys have all turned up and you know it's like you've you've tied up your white horses outside and and we're all supposed to stand up and and give thanks that you've come to save us you need to dial it back and recognize that people who've been here for years have been doing their best and are really really good and that was just one of those moments where you think, yep, we've got that badly wrong. So we deliberately dialed down the rhetoric. We deliberately paid much more attention to giving credit to 
the people that were doing such a great job. Um, because the reality in that business is every day, 5,000 people get up and do an extraordinary job in making bread today that's delivered to a supermarket tomorrow. It is just a daily miracle. Um, so again, that learning point about respect for the past, respect for the people that, that really do the, the hard work. We made, we made a lot of progress in the business. About two and a half years later, uh, I'm with my boss, the, the, the MD. Uh, we're visiting one of the sites in Belfast. We've just pulled up outside the hotel. We're in the back of the taxi. George never carries any cash, so I already knew I had to pay the taxi. And he says, oh, by the way, he said, I'm, I'm moving on, and we'd like you to run the, run the business whilst we uh, think about what we do next. And that was kind of it. That was the whole conversation. I didn't even realize I was being thought of as a candidate. So I kind of fumbled for the money and paid the guy and ran up, ran in behind George to hotel reception. Have you gone mad? You know, I have never run anything on this scale before. And he said, yeah, that's why we like you, because you won't assume you know what you're doing. Um, so they, they let me have a go at it for six months. After six months, they called me up and said, well, actually, we can't find anybody else. Would you like to have a go? And I thought, well, okay, I'm damned by faint praise. I'll, I'll take that on. Um, but in being given that interim job, again, one of those learning stages, you know, somebody said to me, when you get those interim opportunities, it's a bit like getting into your partner's car. You can, you can adjust the mirror and the seat and make it your driving position and properly drive it. Or you can just make do with the fact the mirror's in the wrong place and the seat, you can't quite reach the pedals. Um, but hey, you probably won't crash the car. Um, so give it a go. If you give it, make that conscious choice. If you're given an opportunity on an interim basis, give it a go, was, was what I decided to do. I found being a CEO spectacularly difficult. Really, really, really hard. The, the pressure of the livelihoods of 5,000 people dependent on decisions that ultimately, no matter how hard I tried to create a team-based dynamic, ultimately you're the CEO, you get, paid, you get paid the big bucks to make the big decisions, was just really, really hard. And we did well for most of the period. We made some, some good moves. We made some, made some mistakes. I learned that actually business results don't always reflect how well you play. I, I, was, I had three year ends. Um, the best of them was a year where we just got a bit lucky and got a good result. Uh, the year where I thought we had done all the things we said we would do and done them really well, the result was okay, but not spectacular. But I learned so much about visibility. You are, as the MD or boss of a business, you are never off duty. Everyone looks at you all the time and reads into, and I wear my heart on my sleeve, I, I can't help it. So if I am struggling, I have to make a, a really, really conscious effort to pick myself up and be bright and, and shiny. And I just found doing that kind of every day, week in, week out, exhausting. So when George came and said, look, I'm, I'm setting up a new team at the center of ABF, would you like to come and be the HR director? Uh, it's kind of, oh, yeah, because I don't think I could carry on being MD for very long. And frankly, there are other people who want this job more than me 
and who will be you know massively better at it so just to so interject I, very briefly there does if you if you don't mind and i love how incredibly modest and human you are when you say you know maybe others could have been better than me and such and such and it was incredibly challenging stressful being a ceo i love that modesty because clearly you were very good at it i should say but also as you now find yourself in an advisory capacity and clearly you've advised as 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 long as you have been in your career as you've gone up that um that career trajectory as it were and obviously being ceo one how do leaders ceos or those who are in highly visible positions um how how do they cope with that stress now there are any tips and tricks that you have to impart upon those who might be listening and also now that you're in the advisory role that you are and obviously you've had that throughout the career as well how would you kind of advise those who who might be listening in now again who are ceos or who are struggling especially given the current times because i think it's a very interesting yeah. juxtaposition having been HR and being CEO. I often see, and you'll have seen, you know, we see lots of COOs, CFOs becoming CEOs, less so HR becoming CEO. I'd love it if more did, because I think they get that piece of the people side and then also being in that top job. But, um, you know, any thoughts from advisory, from an HR perspective as well, when it comes to the pressure that leaders are under, certainly at times like this? Yeah, I, I think there are, Probably two, two levels that I'd answer that question on. So, so first of all, the personal one. An old boss of mine, Bill Grimsey at, at Wix, used to talk about executives having a fiduciary duty to stay fit and healthy. And I never understood it until I became an MD. And it, it's non-stop. I mean, this was a UK national job. Uh, but nonetheless, it started at 7 in the morning and it was probably still going most, most nights after 9, 10 o'clock. So you need to be physically and mentally resilient. And that means all that good stuff we know about, you need to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. You need people to talk to. And I used to divide that into work and non-work. So trusted people who you could be vulnerable with at work, where you could say, crikey, I don't like any of these options. Can you, can you work through them with me? we may end up with the least worst you you may need just someone to shut the door and you know have a good shout or swear or giggle with just to relieve some of the pressure i think the second thing uh, on work was find expertise um at the time in abf we did not have a very big center and other than kind of up the line there were relatively few people and the relationships weren't as close as, as we built subsequently. And therefore, you couldn't have too many kind of off the record, what I would, what George always called mulling conversations. Mm -hmm. and, and just finding the space and time and trusted people to work things through was, was crucial. And then you, you've got to be able to draw a line somewhere. You've got to be able to come home and be the other parts of who you are, whether that's a partner or a parent or a sibling or a friend or you, you've got it you, you know we all talk about balance but it, actually getting the balance right in my view helps you be a better executive because it makes you more open to different views different perspectives and 
makes you, I, I mean, frankly, makes you a bit more interesting, if nothing else, because you're not quite so one one dimensional around executive life. And I, I look back at that time and, and wonder, you know, did I do a good enough job at helping the people around me who were under the same kinds of pressures? I, you know, now I, now I go forward when people come to me or in my old job at ABF and say, I want to be an MD. My first question was, why? It's a really rubbish job. <laughs> why, 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 why would you want to be the person where, you know, the buck stops? You know, come, come, have a think about it and come back and tell me why you think that's what you want to be. Um, now, lots of people do, and, and I think, therefore, your job is to encourage it. But I think I probably put a few people off over the years. That's very, very interesting and obviously very funny because we started our conversation talking about someone who remembered you from, from I say way back when, but he is a very, uh, very successful MD, but remembered you from in his early 30s, really coaching and advising him along the way. So clearly you didn't put him off and he did a fantastic job. Um, but that brings me in a way to my next point, which I think, you know, everything that you say there is fascinating and, you know, especially from the early days of what you're describing as basically upward social mobility when it comes to being the first in uh, first in the family to go to university and that the education is a real kingpin within that. Um, the other piece that really comes across is this kind of this almost premise of giving back and that, that when you have made it in inverted commas or are at that the kind of the lofty exec board level which everyone um, or many people do aspire to be at is why we should and why executives should send the lift back down. Obviously it, it feels good and, and we've just had a, a nice live example here of someone who do who does remember that I would love more executives who have the experience that you do to give back because I think it becomes like an ecosystem and you know it is what really does drive good behaviors uh, within business and, and personally as well but I wanted your take when it comes to giving back and how we um, can keep inspiring people to to take advice from this this coaching this mentoring piece and being almost like a role model as people go throughout their careers so I, i'm i'm often quoted as saying that talent management is a contact sport and i i really believe that that the the best way to help people isn't to devise fantastic programs or send them off to business school it's to find the time and the space to talk things through to give opportunities to give feedback to you know sometimes put that metaphorical arm around the shoulder it, it, it's not always a smooth path it, it, it is difficult and and to you know the most difficult thing that it seems to me for a lot of executives is to find the time and the space because their days are so full of stuff you know the stuff they they kind of believe they get paid for I've been lucky in my career to work for two businesses, Northern Foods and ABF, that passionately believe in the, the power of business to do good in communities and societies. So when I worked for Northern, you know, we played our part in our communities all over the UK. We took our responsibilities as an employer and as a neighbour extremely seriously. And, you know, I'm proud in, in ABF that, you know, one of the things we talk about is to be a good neighbour uh, in all our operations all over the world. And that means you have to play your part as, as a business. For executives, I think if you have that context, it becomes, I think, easier. It's almost as if some kind of implicit permission is given to 
take the time to kind of invest in the in the future and it just so happens that for a lot of businesses you know a big part of the future is is around who's going to be in our businesses who's going to lead our businesses in three five ten fifteen years time for a company like abf which is we are unusual there's no there's no doubt about that i don't think we're unique but we, we are unusual um because of the devolved nature of the business um, who's actually running all those companies is actually a major, major decision factor for the ABF executive and board. And, and I just happened to find myself in that time where you're able to spend a large amount of your time engaging with individuals and with small groups around their opportunities, their challenges, their hopes, their ambitions, and encouraging them to find the right route forward for them. Fantastic. And one quick other question, Des, because I'm so conscious of timing here, and I'd love just to have the opportunity to quickly whip into a lightning round as well. Um, yeah, but I wanted to ask you, um, actually about social mobility and I'm so pleased that you were kind enough to bring up your personal background because to, to me and I think to many out there social mobility is absolutely critical really giving people opportunities that they perhaps wouldn't have had otherwise and also looking at talent that exists within communities that we may not have seen to look at it's important that I, I know this word you know hopefully it's not you know taken negatively but by, by, by anyone who's listening in but um, you know to make sure that we're not necessarily being a when it comes to our recruitment practices and procedures, especially at those green grassroots levels, is a massively important factor, I think, of diversity and inclusion, and one that often is not brought to the forefront because the natural pieces are gender. Fame, LGBTQ+, etc. But actually, there's so many invisible diversities that exist with below the skin level that if you didn't ask or if you weren't comfortable enough to scratch away, you wouldn't have known i.e. wouldn't have known you might be the first in the family to have gone to university you might not have an education but you've worked up through throughout the organization in a different way um, that we don't just look at people who have had um, you know university degrees from specific universities before um, allowing them into the organizations now I know that the organizations you work for and advise are, are very diverse when it comes to looking at talent but I wonder whether you could just um, spend a, a brief moment on the importance of procuring talent from different areas and, and any advice and guidance on being able to do so before we go into the lightning round? I think one of, one of the insights that, that I had working with George Weston at ABF, you know, George always just talked in this whole area about talent. You know, I, I want to get the best talent wherever it is, anywhere in the world. And every time we lay down a requirement that isn't really essential, we start to reduce that talent pool. You know, at its simplest, you know, it's, it's a men-only environment. Well, that's half the world gone. Um, what, why would you do that to your business? Um, so I, I've always tried to be as, as broad on that stuff as I can. I think recognizing that there is so much leakage in so many places. You know, we, we talk about the elite Russell Group universities, but there are some really good institutions that aren't in there. But then there are a whole loads of young people that don't even get that far. They've leaked out for all sorts of other reasons. And, and some of the charities that I've worked with over recent years are doing an extraordinary job at helping young people 
find a route back into education when it would have been easier to let them go. So, so the work has to go on at, at every level of the pipeline. I think, I think being clear about how you approach some of the groups and individuals that perhaps have kind of leaked out of the talent pool is, is incredibly difficult and will rely immensely on the context that you're working in, the environment. Um, you know, I, one of our businesses in ABF has done some extraordinary work at localizing management in half a dozen African com- uh, countries where the old model of white South Africans going off to lead businesses is done, uh, rightly so. But you can't just say that and hope it happens overnight. It, it's the work of years to equip people to take on the leadership of these complex businesses. And therefore, there is no quick solution. You've got to get up in the morning and give it another go, be, be humble enough to understand you really don't have all the answers. Even last week, I was talking with uh, a guy who runs a charity in Derby here in the UK, um, and the way he was talking about reaching to groups of potential users in that city was just inspiring, ways that I'd never thought of that you would be able to find service users. So, you know, I. uh, I seem to have spent all my life going, I have no idea how to do this. Let's find someone who can and then copying them quickly. Thank you so much for sharing, Des. Some really valuable points there. And conscious of you being a a very busy man, uh, I'd love to just move into uh, literally a couple of last questions in the line before I do a summary uh, for today, because I've already kept you for 40 minutes. I can't believe that. Do you know what? It's been a really, it's been a fascinating fascinating learning experience from lots of different aspects and you know especially for me actually or rather I should be doing this in my summary at the end but um, especially from the point of view of, of, of HR and, uh, and and CEO um, kind of type leadership I think there's so few and it's such a shame I would love more HR directors to to see them in in those CEO roles because I think everything you talk about when it comes to humanity everything that you talk about when it comes to you know ultimately um, you know leading with the heart to a degree and actually looking looking at talent and looking at the people within the organization, which is ultimately the most important, well, that is the lifeblood of an organization, isn't it? Well, one of, one of them. One yes, one of them. One of them. One of them. Yeah. Most know, definitely. I used to say HR person was the most important. And absolutely. But you, but you look at, but when you look at, a, you know, and again, not within ABF here, but when you look at other organizations externally, there are still organizations that would not give a role to HR um, to sit at the top table. You know, you spend a lot yeah. of years within within kind of boardrooms and you think, how on earth is there not a voice for, for HR here? And so I think it's, it's been a really powerful message, and hopefully to everyone who's been listening in, be it, be it you're in a people or a DNI function or in yeah. that leadership function, the juxtaposition between the two is actually very, very, very interesting to explore. Anyhow, my, uh, my, well, uh, let me take two lightning round questions here and I'll give you about 30 seconds to answer, answer each, Des. Um, but first of all, I wonder who has been the biggest inspiration to you throughout your career? And it could be personal, could be professional, or it could be both. I've learned a hell of a lot as I've worked through. Two, two of the men I worked with in Northern Foods many years ago were inspiring because they gave me 
gave, they gave me a chance. And when I got it wrong, um, and I did spectacularly, they picked me up and put me back together and rebuilt my confidence. So to both of them, I would say uh, they, they helped me grow up. That's so lovely. It's so important, so important that we as leaders do give opportunities there and inspire that confidence because clearly it works. And in, our, in, in, in the case of our mutual friend, Lawrence, as well, um, who I'm sure is listening in right now. Um, and finally, I wondered if you were to be able to go uh, way back when to talk to the, the young uh, Des back in, uh, back in the day uh, where your dad was thinking, my goodness, how much is this university <laughs> career going to cost me um, I wonder is there any, any advice that you would give to to your young self don't don't listen to that inner voice of doubt I, I've learned over a long period of time now to say to myself what's the worst that could happen if we tried and that I know that drives the people around me nuts sometimes when I say it uh, but I do look back and think, I wonder uh, sometimes what might have happened if I had the confidence to ask myself that question at various points in my life. Thank you so much, Daz. It's been an absolute honour having you on the show today. So thank you ever so much. Enormous pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And just by way of summary, of which there's been a abundance of learning points and nuggets of wisdom here to share with everyone. I will just touch on a few. But I think some of the really most inspiring pieces for me have been the genuine modesty and, and openness and transparentness that you have gone about telling some of these stories. And you know what's really nice is you clearly are very passionate about giving back to others and giving an opportunity to others. And I wonder whether that is because of some of the wonderful experiences that you have had. Clearly, clearly from, from those that have been the most inspirational to you are those that have really inspired that confidence who have um, given you a shake and said, hey, you can do it. And what is the worst that can happen? And I think it's times like that through our career and indeed through our personal life that we often remember the most at whatever age we are. Um, I, when you were talking about that, was already thinking about people who had really inspired a difference in, in my career who, if they hadn't have said, look, you can do it, I probably wouldn't have gone to do it. And so the importance there to leaders and people who are listening in, everyone, really, there's always an opportunity to be able to give back, to be kind and to give someone a little bit of an extra spring in their step as they go about their day-to-day -day duties. So um, that was something that was absolutely key for me. Um, and then in, in addition, I, I think, you know, when it comes to the pressures of, of leadership, clearly they, they do come in an abundance, you know, whether it be throughout various parts in your career. But I think certainly for, for leaders of today who are going through what is a terrible, um, terribly difficult situation right now is actually being humble and modest enough to say, look, you know, you don't necessarily know what all the answers are. You know, we are all human beings at the end of the day. And so needing, heeding individuals to talk to is absolutely fine. You know, for those, again, who have listened to this podcast, I think it's, it's great to hear from CEOs who, um, CEOs, former CEOs, HRDs, you know, people of many different disciplines 
of work that actually it's fine to heed advice. We all need someone to talk to and we need people to talk to within our personal life and within our professional life as well because um, it's that ecosystem that makes sure that we can continue doing what we're doing. If we don't look after ourselves, then we certainly certainly as heck won't be able to look after others. So um, thank you very, very much. And I hope that that was an adequate summary. I could have gone on for a very long time, Des, but I thought I'll try and keep it as succinct as I can. But, uh, but yeah, thank you once again. All right, lovely to talk to you. Um, lovely. Look forward to uh, seeing this when you when you publish it. Absolutely, absolutely. My name is Leila Mackenzie Dellis, and you have been listening to the Diverse and Inclusive Leaders podcast show. Uh, we're normally here every week, but at the moment we're here twice weekly, so you can tune in, um, subscribe via any of your favorite podcast apps, and you can visit www.dalglobal.org forward slash podcast as well to see all of our previously recorded shows. Thank you so much and look forward to seeing you again very soon.